This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Tonight, you are with Bite Into It with uh, Dan Morganti. Hello. And Dan Salmon. Good evening. And Vanessa Taholka, because we can't all be Dan's. But you can be Van. Oh, uh, yeah, done we've done, done that before. before. <laughs> <laughs> um, the state... Uh, tonight, we'll be speaking a little bit about the state budget, and also we're going to have a good amount of time with a couple of people behind the Free Play Independent Games Festival, which is coming up very soon. So do stay tuned for that. But first of all, in budget news, the 2018-19 state budget has delivered new creative industries initiatives totalling $78.7 million over four years. $8.4 million of that will support local screen production via Film Victoria, including investment in film, television and games development. We're trying to just bring you all the IT-related little bits and pieces of the state budget. So, Dan Morganti, what else do we have here? Um, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, uh, ACME, will receive $31.6 million for a major renewal project, uh, which will transform the 16-year-old museum... Uh, in Federation Square, so we'll redesign it and uh, make it better. Reinvest. Yeah, which was, you know, it's already pretty cool, so. Yeah, fantastic. Um, We know how quickly the tech changes in that space, so really great to see that reinvestment. Uh, The payroll tax-free threshold has increased to $650,000, while the payroll tax rate for regional businesses has been slashed to half of the city rate. I guess this is only relevant to ICT in the sense that it's relevant to all small businesses and I guess it makes it a little bit easier for some of them to get their get their uh, businesses off the ground before they have to think about paying payroll tax and getting a few employees on the books and interesting incentives there for regional businesses. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, makes it easier for them, I think. Yeah. Well, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the government has announced uh, 172 million uh, will go to free TAFE courses to train tens of thousands of students in uh, 30 high priority fields. Um, so the budget includes 303.8 million for an additional 30,000 new places plus multi-million dollar upgrades to TAFEs at Morwell, Sale and Bendigo. And there are a range of TAFE courses that do cover things related to ICT, but I haven't been able to drill down into those high priority fields yet to find out if any of those are covered there. I, f- I well, did hear there's, that... there's 30 of them, so yeah. surely some of them are going to have to be in that field, right? Look, one of them was, was called out as hospitality, you know, certificate three sort of level, but uh, I imagine there'll be a share of building and construction in there. Oh, absolutely. Mm. We also saw a $50 million Head Start program, which will give... Uh, 1,700 budding tradies the chance to finish their VCE while doing their apprenticeship. So it's it's just sort of an addendum to the other TAFE investment. Uh, there's also a little bit in there about careers education, which helps students plan their job path, which will get $109 million boost. So that's the budget news that we picked up immediately, but we'll probably see more analysis in the next week about any impact to ICT. Obviously, there's a lot that comes down at the federal level in that space, so I'm not sure if there'll be that many more revelations. But, mm, uh, it's just a matter of cracking the nut at this point and seeing I uh, certainly seeing all the pieces. haven't finished reading that budget document no. yet. Well, you'll get it, uh, better get it done quickly. Oh, yeah. next, we've got the federal one next week. Pressure's so, on. Yeah, Pressure's absolutely. On. Speaking of federal, while we're on that uh, particular topic, um, the federal government has announced uh, that they are 
implementing a new national data commissioner uh, who is going to be independently managing the balance between uh, releasing open data from federal agencies uh, for public benefit to and the risk to personal, <coughs> excuse me, in, into, uh, individual privacy. So we're seeing a lot more in recent years uh, use of uh Big, I suppose, big data yeah. from from a government perspective uh, that might be, you know, possibly uh, to improve transport or to uh, any other many many other ways that um, data might be used in that way. But it's always again talking about that fine balance. So this is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this is one of the three recommendations that has come from the uh, Productivity Commissioner's uh, investigation into. Uh, Excuse me. I'm very sorry about this. Oh, sorry. We can jump in. No, no, that's fine. The product in, into data availability and use. So the the three uh, main uh, features underpinning the reforms were a consumer data right, which will give, give citizens greater transparency and, troll, and control of their own data, and uh, legislative and governance arrangements to enable better use of data across the economy. The, the, the National Data Commissioner is the third one of these uh, pillars underpinning all of this. Um, it's coming uh, on, the, on the back of... Uh, the uh, mandatory data breach notification scheme that came in earlier this year and as well as the um, European Union's uh, GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, you might have noticed uh, in recent times a lot of uh, uh, internet service providers and, and uh, uh, other, other tech companies have been updating their privacy and data uh, retention uh, policies. And you, yeah, yeah, I've got so many emails to read now about yeah. updated terms and conditions. Mm. Um, the it's the not notifiable data breaches web is is interesting as well, just because um, it's. I suppose what what is what do they consider to be notifiable? It's a, it's a bit. Yeah, nebulous. They've, they, oh, they've defined it actually yeah. a lot in the in the thing. It's it's about the number of employees you have. It's whether you're government or non-government. It's about um, you know the amount of uh, money that your business turns over. So there's a whole lot of things there. Indeed. Yeah. No, but it, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the data commissioner because uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a constantly moving space and government has traditionally not been particularly good at keeping up with things that are moving quickly. We should really <laughs> try and speak to a lawyer in this space very soon. Mm. And it's been a while since we've had um, a tech specialist lawyer in, and I think there's so many movements, uh, particularly required. Uh, around privacy and our data mm. that uh, require some expert yes. commentary. So um, we'll look to do that indeed, soon. Indeed, yeah. Asher Wolf, who we've had on the show previously, has a lot to say about this as well. So we might need to have a chat with Asher at some point. Yeah, do recommend reading her Twitter feed. Yes. Um, also, Victoria has threatened to pull out of a state and federal government agreement uh, for a facial recognition system um, because the bill expands Peter Dutton's powers and allows access to information by the private sector and local governments. Um, the Identity Matching Services Bill, uh, introduced, introduced in February, enables the Home Affairs Department to collect, use and disclose identification information, uh, including facial biometric matching, which means that they can match your face to uh, security footage and things like that. Um, the kinds of information that they have access to or would have access to is passport, uh, visa, citizen, citizenship and driver's license images uh, for a wide range of criminal investigations. Um, and private sector entities would only have access to verification uh, services, not to identity unknown individuals. So they wouldn't be able to do the facial recognition services without 
uh, consent of the person whose identity is being checked and uh, the like. But that's yeah, essentially why I, Victoria's pulled out. I think some of those issues about consent are, are really a bit uh, facetious, though, because it's like, who doesn't give consent for your image to be used in your Australian passport, for example? You, yeah. That's a consent that you have to give. You know, do we really have the rights to not consent to that? No, we really don't. Yeah. And the same with, you know, your driver's licence or, or what have you. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's an interesting area. I, I do still stick by the old school, get a warrant type of yeah. argument, you know, which the Greens campaigned heavily on. Maybe they'd have a little bit more success if they had an opt-out uh, clause in there or something like that along those lines? Um, the reasons they they pose for all of these changes are always very um, legitimate reasons about, you know, and they, they seem to usually have a fear component. It's always about crime or terrorism, those sort of things. And that's all well and good, but there have been too many examples of uh, people mismanaging that sort of data and I'm very sceptical about using it for these sort of things. We'd like to say a big welcome to a couple of people from the Free Play Independent Games Festival. We have festival director Chad Toprak. Hello. Hey, and visual art lead Marigold Goldie Bartlett. Hello. Is it okay if we call you Goldie in here? It sure is. It's a pretty spectacular nickname. I love it. Um, so this year, Free Play is running from the 22nd to the 27th of May. Tell us about the theme for the festival this year. So this year's uh, theme is Intersections. Uh, we're really interested in exploring all the all the interesting uh, nooks and crannies and avenues and intersections where games and play uh, meet and collide with other forms of media, other disciplines, and other social and cultural conversations. Um, so we're really pushing for games people to step out of their comfort zone and look at um, neighboring fields like architecture, visual art, literature, film, etc. Uh, but we're also inviting a lot of uh, people from those fields to come and look at games. So how many years has Freeplay been around now? Oh, a very long time. So Freeplay started in 2004 as part of the Next Wave Festival. Um, the last festival we had was in 2015 uh, and we celebrated the the 10th Freeplay then. Uh, so we have been around for quite a long time. Excellent. Uh, so being a festival about games, that must be a lot of pressure because you need to make your festival super fun. How have you decided to design and curate your festival this year? Um, so we've, we've been very fortunate enough to bring together a really strong team. Um, we have something like seven staff members, 13 judges, a program committee. I think we've got seven of those. Uh, and the board as well. Um, so we've got a team of something like 30 or 32 people working behind the scenes uh, to make the best festival we can. Um, and it wouldn't be possible without those people. Uh, and what about the keynote speakers and all the guests and uh, speakers that you'll be having as well? How many of those? Uh, yeah. Are so <clears throat> we've we've got a lot of speakers uh, lined up for this year's free play. I think we last time I counted it was something like 97 or 98 speakers. That's a lot. I it is, think it's a record, actually. It is, it is a record. Um, we're very excited to have uh, two keynotes that are coming uh, from overseas. We have Tale of Tales, Aurea Harvey and Mikhail Samin coming down from Belgium. Um, so they uh, created a, a company called Tale of Tales quite a long time ago. Uh, and they've been making these really 
interesting and different types of games, very experimental. Uh, they have a background in, um, in, uh, in new media art. Uh, they did a lot of stuff back in the 1990s and early 2000s around uh, the internet, web art. And, uh, and they, they realized that games were becoming a thing. And so they were like, hey, we should try making games. Uh, but uh, they received a lot of backlash from both developers and uh, gamers saying like, oh, this is not really a game, etc." And so uh, eventually they, they embraced that and they coined the term not games. <laughs> um, and so they were like, yeah, we're just going to make not games. You guys are so controversial. I love it. Your keynotes are the not game specialists. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our other keynote is Zereda Buta coming in from the Netherlands. Uh, Zereda is a, uh, a curator, producer, organizer extraordinaire, and uh, she runs this uh, festival called the Playful Arts Festival uh, in, in the Netherlands. And, uh, and the, the one really great thing about that festival is its focus on not only games, but also other forms of playful media. So there's things from um, theatre to performance art to visual art, all sorts of things. And she's just super talented and has a really broad knowledge of everything games related, both in Europe and around the world. Gosh, I love that you're bringing her because, uh, you know, something in the Netherlands about games is really not that accessible to so many people here, especially when games is not, a, a tr you know, rolling in money, like people who work in games aren't rolling in money. I love that you're exposing that opportunity. That's that's really cool. How did you get connected with her? Uh, we actually met when I was traveling around Europe in 2013. Um, the Netherlands was one of the cities that, uh, sorry, one of the countries that I was fortunate enough to visit. And uh, I had <clears throat> heard about her. I think one of my friends recommended that I meet her. So I just sent her a tweet and I said, hey, are you around? And uh, we ended up meeting at a cafe and got to hang out. I love the idea that you've been accidentally curating this for years <laughs> now, Chad, but it's all just finally coming together. Yeah, it's really exciting. Goldie, I know you've been travelling recently. Yeah. Do, when you do that, can you help having your ear to the ground about who the great games people are in the areas that you're visiting? Oh, you can't help it at all. I think um, especially, you know, we're all from the internet working in games. Um, it's just everybody knows where everybody else is from and word gets around that particular people are either coming to your town or you're going to theirs. And, yeah, coffees and dinners and, and studio tours are really easy to hook up. Um, and then when you get to running a festival like Free Play, it's pretty easy to just say, who wants to come to Australia? And, um, yeah, people generally want to come. Which That's is fantastic. Good. So yeah. is the independent scene... Although it's global, it's pretty tight-knit and you have a lot of crossover with other festivals and things like that. Yeah, and I think what we're trying to do um, now with the theme of intersections is is like make it uh, more of an open scene for those other art forms to come and join. Because it is so tight-knit that um, there's generally only a few pathways into it, which is either like getting a degree in games or being an independent... Uh, like a self-taught game designer. And I think games will, um, yeah, just be richer for having other other media come and pollinate. So <laughs> you guys are at the front line of games and you're seeing some of the most interesting experimental things come up out of uh, some of the freer development spaces, like indie spaces. I wonder, do you see much collaboration happening across borders, like outside of Australia with, with Aussies? I feel like there's more and more of that. Um, so if you if you look back 
uh, several years in the past. Um, we're talking 2010, 2012. Um, Australia suffered from not being part of that global mm. conversation. Uh, there was only a select few people who were, who were making an effort to kind of get out there and, and uh, make themselves known. Um, and, you know, p- part of that is because of how geographically disconnected we are from the rest of the world. But like Goldie said, we're now living in, in the internet age and there's so many independent developers in, in Australia who are just reaching out and making those connections. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. We have lots of developers, lots of artists, musicians who are working on games internationally. Um, I just want to add that it also relates so strongly to what you were talking about earlier with budgeting. Um, for example, my trip was funded by a local um, Film Victoria grant for women in games that finally afforded me the chance to go overseas and do that. So that's very, very, very good news yeah. for all of us. It's brilliant to see the mm. investment there. And even in the state budget, as you heard earlier, like yes. there was a little bit there about Film Victoria, which is fantastic because it's one of those you know, very mm. contemporary arts organisations, arts and cultural organisations that's yeah. thinking about games. That's I am it. noticing that more and more with the studios that are getting grants from Film Victoria. It seems to be like they're actually oh, taking act, an active interest. It's making such a big difference. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little about your conference program because I feel like you've got a range of audiences that come to free play. So who is the conference program really for? <clears throat> So I feel like a large bulk of uh, the audience will be uh, people who have games backgrounds. So we're talking developers, artists, designers, musicians, writers, all those types of people. Um, but because of the, the nature of the theme intersections, I feel like there's going to be, uh, uh, you know, again, a, a bunch of people who are outside of games, uh, who are just curious about what's happening in the games world. So. Uh, writers, artists, musicians, contemporary uh, creatives who are interested to see what's happening in, in games. Uh, hopefully they'll come around and, and check it out For as well. For sure. Like when I first signed up to go to uni, I actually went and had a look at the fine arts school and it wasn't quite right, but the game design course looked much more like my speed. But I've traditionally kind of got a background in illustration and zines and stuff like that. But I found and have continue to find that games are really open for artists making you know it's the same DIY stuff it's just a little bit more techy um, and so yeah hoping that a lot of like those creators from Melbourne especially will feel welcome and come and check it out so the I guess oh, yeah, so, yeah sorry the uh, the other important thing is that Freeplay always tries its best to um, partner with other cultural institutions like ACME, like the State Library of Victoria, like Testing Grounds. And so uh, those spaces also bring in their own audience. And so we get, we get this really nice crossover and cross-pollination of different types of artists from different backgrounds. So it's great. So is there anyone um, that you can tell us about in your conference program that might be indicative of some of the things that are coming Ooh, where do we start? Um, so we, we have all these great games people coming down. Um, Bennett Foddy is one of the mm. highlights. I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> yeah, so we're very excited to have Bennett Foddy coming down uh, and speaking. Uh, so for those who don't know who Bennett Foddy is, uh, why should they? So Bennett Foddy is perhaps one of the most famous Australian game developers who actually lives outside of Australia. He's uh, he's Traitor, in, traitor. He's <laughs> a <Brody> Dale of... <laughs> he, uh, he, he lives in New York. Um, uh, but he's made games like uh, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy, 
uh, he's made. He's and that worked, has so much hype. That game it, getting over, like people talk about oh, this endlessly. It is so good. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. Uh, and yeah, he's he's worked on so many other great games. Let's talk about getting over it for a moment, so people can get a sense of why why that game um, had so much traction. So getting over it with Bennett Foddy is this really, really frustrating game about uh, a guy who I presume is naked uh, <laughs> inside a cauldron. Um, you only see the top half of his body and he's holding this sledgehammer. And the whole point of the game is to try and make it to the very end. It's kind of like a side-scrolling game, but you only have ac- uh, you only have control of the sledgehammer. So you have to kind of like push the sledgehammer forward and then pull, it's dry a yourself. It's physics-based um very, very difficult controllers, um, which Bennett it uses only a mouse, right? So, I think and it's so. it's not very intuitive when you're using the mouse, and so that that's no. where I yeah. think a lot of the frustration comes from. I've only from, watched right? footage of it being played. Um, yeah, it is it is very frustrating because you can make a lot of progress in the game, and then you you stuff up, and then you fall, and then you lose all that progress. Yeah, and and then he has his uh, philosophical musings over it, which I think yes. is probably the what makes the game so special is that as you fail, he will narrate why you failed and then exactly. relate that back to life <laughs> exactly. and how you should be. You exactly. know, if you fall down, you get back up and you keep going. I'd, I'd it's I'd such a great premise because it starts out so surreal mm. and then you're like, really? I'm meant to, to interact with this seriously? Yep. Yeah, it yep. challenges all of your, your assumptions going into a game. Yeah. Looking mm. forward to yeah, his his he's going to be great. I think he's an in- interesting guy as well. Yeah. I've heard him speak before, and um, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, he could talk about anything, and it'd be good. Okay, so we're back with Chad and Goldie talking about the Free Play Independent Games Festival, uh, as well as having conferences and keynotes and things. You have some workshops as part of this because you're not just about telling stories and and telling about experiences and, and skills. You're also about actively building them. For sure. What sort of workshops do you have going on? Um, we've got four workshops um, coordinated by Maze Wallen, a good friend of mine. Um, An excellent friend of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so there's a theatre workshop, um, a zine-making workshop, a twine game-making workshop, which is totally awesome and uh, also a workshop about alternative controller construction. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, so what is Twine for those of our listeners who haven't heard of it before? Twine is a piece of software uh, which is a super handy tool for um, especially writers who might want to get into game design. Um, it's just a very easy to use um, but extremely powerful um, sort of text-based uh, game engine, uh, very good uh, for branching storylines and looping back and sort of allowing you to create a, an interactive map of uh, chunks of writing for mm. a player to explore. And some brilliant stuff has been made uh, using Twine over the years. Yeah, there's lots of people with soft spots for those text-based oh, yeah. games. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's just so accessible that... Um, uh, you know, I'm working on a Twine game with my mum at the moment and she, you know, there's no problems there. It's, it's. I, I think, like, if you um, perhaps think that you might not have any technical skills getting into games, Twine is the best place to start uh, in terms of, like, adventure layout or story layout. Oh, that's a really good tip. Mm. Um, and the alternative controllers, what was that? Is that like the... 
making controllers out of bananas and... Uh, that has happened. Yes. That has happened. There was, uh, I think, uh, a friend of mine named Barnaby uh, made a game a few years ago where he plugged uh, carjack stuff into a turnip and a pumpkin and <laughs> depending on which one you touched, you know, it sent electro- electronic signals. Um, but I think the alternative <laughs> controller workshop will be run by a bloke named Louis Roots, who's a friend of ours from Perth. Oh, he's um, been on the show. He also yeah, he's famous a, for running indie game bar, he's a bar legend. SK. Yep. Yeah. Good, good guy. He is all over turning weird stuff into weird controllers for weird games. Um, and he's a good teacher, so so his workshops will be very, very interesting the for trifecta. anybody. Yeah, yeah, it'll be good. Um, it's nice to branch out into that hardware for sector, sure. Yeah, we don't always get that. You know, um, I was over in uh, America recently, and I played a really interesting um, thing by a guy called Patrick Lemieux, where he took a, a NES Entertainment System, Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, had eight controllers running out of it, and each controller. Uh, was for a respective button. So there was a, an, a left button and an A button and a select <laughs> button um, per controller. And so groups of eight would get up and play Tetris. Oh, you have to collaborate. Oh, yeah. oh that so is a nightmare and genius at the same at time. Each other, you know, to rotate, rotate, oh. go down. <laughs> you know, um, and it worked like a charm. So oh. alt controllers are definitely a thing. Watch out, people. That's mm. going to be the next corporate bonding exercise. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's tremendous. And you had one in there which was about theatre. Now, I'd love to hear about that and how theatre can cross over with games experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So the theatre workshop is hosted by uh, Georgia Simmons and uh, Josiah Lalon. Um, uh, It's really exciting because uh, games and theatre share a lot in common, way more than you'd think. I feel like uh, when people talk about games, they relate it most to, say, film. Mm-hmm. But in my opinion, games relate way more to to theatre and performance art. Um, so it'll be kind of like an introductory uh, workshop to, you know, um, uh, improv and theatre and performance and how those things can be uh, uh, playful and how games people can learn more from that. Uh, and so... I hope it'll be like this fun, playful session uh, where people get to perform and you know um, act and uh, and all that sort of good stuff. So, is the aim to uh, inform game development? Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. All right, okay, I like that. Uh, so, you also have uh, an awards night as part of Free Play. What are these awards for? Uh, so the awards have been uh, an integral part of the Free Play Festival for a, a very long time. Um, uh, they'll usually happens on the very last day of the festival, um, and we give out awards to uh, a bunch of locally developed games from all across Australia. For the first time, we're opening our awards to uh, New Zealand game developers. This is something that was inspired by. Uh, Play by Play, which is a a sister festival that happens in Wellington. Um, So we have 10 awards to to give out this year. Um, We have uh, the the grand prize, the Free Play Award. Mm -hmm. We have an excellence in design, visual art, narrative, audio, um, the Across the Ditch Award, which is the new <laughs> New Zealand category. We love that expression for New Zealand. We use it all the time. Um, we have a couple of new categories this year which have actually been really popular. 
Um, we've got the Experimental Game Award, mm-hmm. uh, which is now the third most popular category. Um, and then we have a Micro Game Award, which is also the fourth most popular category. Um, How are you defining a micro game? Mm. So micro games, are, they're supposed to be tiny little games that you can complete in in one single session. Oh, amazing. And they usually last for about an hour or less. So these are very like uh, tiny little vignettes that, um, you mm. know, uh, you don't have to be like the, like when we're not after polished games that are supposed to look great and and feel great that, that have been worked on for years and years. We're we're looking for something that people work on um, that that are kind of personal to them and are meaningful. Um, and so a lot of those types of games kind of get missed out on with uh, these other categories like excellence and visual art, where you get like the best looking game kind of wins the award. So in your experience, do you see some of those micro games, you know, having enough of a genesis of a good idea to then get iterated upon and, and become part of, say, a core feature of a bigger game? Sometimes that happens. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it happens. Otherwise, they're just beautiful standalone mm. little games. Mm. Some recognition. Yeah, I definitely think there's demand for that. Mm. I, I don't know about you, Dan, but... Yeah. Um, oh, I'd for sure like to see some some interesting stuff. And that, I think that's probably where the most creative things occur, right? There's some right? amazing yeah. stuff coming and even just out of Melbourne. I think there is a lot of concern from audiences too about not having the time to invest in games yep. and that being a reason that they don't get involved because they think they have to get online, find a plan, log mm. on at the same time every week. You know, <laughs> hey, it's, I, don't it even, seems, I don't even know how to do that. Yeah, it seems like a <laughs> massive commitment. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've also got some online festival events as well for people who may not be able to make it or mm-hmm. just for everyone. I think most of the festival is going to be either live broadcast, um, especially during the conference, which is my personal favourite part of the festival. Um, and yeah, a bunch of, I think, eight online talks sort of covering things from visual novels through to board games, uh, psychogeography and games, um, Southeast Asian indie games. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Hold up a sec. What is psychogeography? Um, psychogeography uh, explores what it means to be uh, living and moving in and around a city uh, and being aware of your surroundings. Um, <clears throat> we've got uh, a bunch of really talented people from both Australia and overseas on that panel. I'm super interested to see what they talk about, is especially this, relating it back to games. Is this uh, like involving an uh, augmented reality style games and stuff like that? Is- Possibly, possibly, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. well. That yeah, that's what I got from yeah. that uh, kind of stuff. Yeah, and with the connections there, I mean, that sounds like the sort of things I speak to um, wayfinders about, or you know, architects and city yeah. planners. Absolutely. Right. Okay. I think like it, you know, a lot of the time in games, we are constructing three D spaces or yeah. even just narratives and being informed by the cities or towns that we're from. Um, through the lens of psychogeography is totally a thing. Oh, that sounds tremendous. Yeah. Excellent. Very nice. Um, and you've got uh, free play at the Hover Garden Party at Testing Grounds. That's, this is the big one. Come yeah, along so if you're listening and not too sure. So when's this happening? So it'll be on the Saturday evening. Starts at about 7. Uh, we're in this really amazing big open space called Testing Grounds. Um, it's right behind the, the art centre, the big spire. And uh, it'll be kind of a culmination of um, video games and installation art. There'll be lots of things to play. There'll be live music. Yummy food. There'll be food, drinks. DJs. Uh, and DJs. 
uh, we'll have uh, an artist's market where local artists kind of bring in their crafts and goods and wares, things like zines, um, stickers, artwork, badges. Stuff that games people yeah. love. Yeah. Um, We've also curate, uh, sorry, commissioned five original games to be amazing. made for it. So, some amazing artists um, making stuff very, you know, for us for that now, which is really exciting. Is this um, like multiplayer focused or? I'm not too sure. It'll it'll, yeah. it'll be a mix of both. It'll, there'll be like multiplayer games because it really makes use of the the setting. There'll be just mm-hmm. be a, a bunch of people there, and so it's a really great space to be playing multiplayer games. But also we're hoping to have some smaller, like little little games in kind of little nooks in the space that you uh, stumble upon. It's like this little secret surprise. Sounds great. Good times. Yeah, uh, I just want to add if any makers, uh, you know, zine makers, pin makers, sticker makers, print makers, Melbourne artist types are out there listening um, and might want to uh, bring some stuff along to the market, um, you can email us at info at freeplay.net.au. Um, or reach out on Twitter uh, at free underscore play. Love it. All right. So for those who haven't um, picked it up yet, we're talking about the Free Play Independent Games Festival coming up from May 22nd to the 27th. You can check it all out at uh, freeplay.net.au. Chad, Goldie, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about what you have in store for very excited audiences this year. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Look forward to seeing you there. Uh, We had some slightly disturbing news out of Facebook this week. Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> the CEO, was at a, an annual developer conference on Tuesday and they unveiled a feature designed to compete with services like Bumble and Tinder and Grindr and all those other dating things that are out there. Uh, so they're in San Jose and Zuckerberg described this dating feature as a tool to build real long-term relationships, not just hookups. Oh, uh, no one needed to hear the word hookup coming out of Zuckerberg's no, mouth. This, make, this makes me sick to every part of my body. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the chief product officer, Chris Cox, has said the dating feature would be opt-in, obviously. <laughs> uh, no. Well, that's a relief. And no, These are the people you must date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that it would take advantage of the unique properties of the platform. So... We don't know that much about it. We know that people can um, only see each other's first names Mm -hmm. and will only be visible to people using the specific Facebook dating service, not to actual regular other people on Facebook. You would hope so. You would hope so. The feature will not show up in the news feed, he added. No kidding. Um, (laughs) Imagine if it did, though. So it is quite funny reading the, the reporting from this event because it is a whole lot of people going, they said very obvious things about it, but they didn't address any of our concerns. Yeah. And, and, like, it's come on the, like, right on the back of all of this horrible press that Facebook have been having. How did they Cambridge think? Cambridge Analytica. How yeah. did they think that this was what they should be announcing? Well, see, the funny thing is I feel like if you're Facebook and you're going to run a dating service, then you've actually got some advantages on your competitors. However, they haven't mentioned any of my proposed features, but I'm going to put them in front of you. Okay. And you can tell me if these seem like good or bad ideas. Let's go. All right. So something that's awkward about online dating services Mm -hmm. is that people come up who might be people in your life who you wouldn't want to see you on a dating service. But theoretically, Facebook should already know your relations to some of these people and you should be able to mark, this is a colleague from my workplace who I do not want to see me on a dating platform Mm -hmm. or this is an ex-partner who I do not want to see me on a dating platform and that Facebook is uniquely well-placed to do so. 
My only concern is, is if you if you made that active, uh, usually I believe in transparency at all costs, right? Mm-hmm. Are there some unintended negative consequences if you then make it so that people can't see it? For example, if someone wanted to cheat on their partner, would they just go in and make sure that their partner and all their partner's friends could never see them acting on this dating platform? See, it starts to get problematic so quickly, right? Well, this is an interesting thing that you raise because... Facebook, in the beginning, Facebook would give you the option of saying, this person is my ex or this person is my cousin or this person, like, what is my... You could actually nominate what your relationship is. And if you go into a person's profile, you still can do that. So... At, but when you're not doing that on, like, let's say, you know, I've got plenty of cousins on Facebook um, and I, I don't tag that I am their cousin. Sure. Does Facebook work that out without me telling them? I think it probably it, does. Yeah. It seems like Facebook, for the most part, would know you better than you. So they probably, probably, having said it that... It probably I'm, just <laughs> takes one happy birthday message where someone goes, happy birthday, cuz. Yeah, true. And it's like, tagged, got it, know yeah. the relationship. <laughs> the true. Having having said that, I do have a friend who was matched on Tinder with her cousin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> See, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. I also think that they're, they're okay at handling close relationships, family, friends, colleagues, but they're terrible at handling anti-relationships, estranged people in your life who you never want to see you. People who you hate follow? Well, yeah. no, I mean... <laughs> oh, know, look, I've no this person I hate following. Well, there's no hate following on Facebook, for example. No. But on things like Twitter, you know, it is diff- it doesn't manage trolls or other type of bad actors on that platform very well. Mm. And I feel like dating services also only act after the fact and don't let people preemptively go, there are people in this world who I know vote differently to me and I never want to match with. Mm. Is it is it only going to match you with people who you aren't already friends on Facebook with? Or will it, it start makes, drawing from your own It makes Facebook no such pool? assurances and so I think we don't know. No, because I remember one th- interesting thing in the, the brief period that I used Tinder, um, it would, and I'm not sure if it still does, it probably does, tell you how who your Facebook yeah, and your it, common Facebook yeah, ties. Your, really? your common ties, who, yeah. you, who you know. So you have to have a Facebook to use Tinder? No, I don't no, think you have no. to, but if you had it linked, um, ah. it would tell you who your mutual, uh, friends. mutual friends are. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which, I, it, for what purpose? Are you going to say, hey, so you know this person? Yeah, I hooked up with them last yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, I mean, there are all kinds of well, weird I mean, little... Th- uh, there's no fail-safes here. I don't think they can build fail-safes. I, th- I think that's why those other pl- other platforms like Tinder have been so successful because they're not attached to your Facebook, which is used for basically all your social interactions and then your romantic interactions wow. are, are removed. Yeah, absolutely. And what if Facebook is using, you know, your personal... Like, the things that it's extrapolated from, you know, based on whatever you like or, you know, it, your interactions, and it's made some assumptions about you that you haven't made public on Facebook, you know, so, maybe your personal preferences in certain things. Yeah. And then it's matching you with someone who has those same preferences but they also haven't made it explicit. Look, so, it, like, oh, look, we're both into... Yeah, by, <laughs> like, by the same token, you could, you could be like, oh, I didn't know I was into furries and now they've uh, let, me in, let me in on this community. I, 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 I didn't. Facebook knows me better than I know myself. Yeah. You might like this micro-dating service. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh. Look, we really don't have enough information to, to make any strong conclusions. What they have said is that they hope to um, use the strength of their events 
type of capabilities mm. to help people figure out, oh, you're interested in an event that I'm interested in and we're both on the singles platform sort of thing. So, that so there might be there might be some sort of integration there. Uh, it sounds very problematic to me. Uh, a lot of events on the platform tend to be things that I'm interested in from, you know, with my work hat on. Yeah. So and probably not ones I want to date at. No, possibly not. And they're also interestingly setting up another text messaging feature for this particular for this specific purpose. So you're not going to be contacting people on Facebook Messenger or uh, WhatsApp, which, as we all know, is owned by Facebook. Ah, and interesting news on WhatsApp. The um, the WhatsApp, the previous owner who ended up on the board of Facebook. Uh, when they were acquired by Facebook, has now stepped away from that position and, um, you know, said that he's not happy with the direction that's going in in terms of privacy. Yeah. Does, yeah. It, does it have something to do with the public scrutiny yeah. or just yeah. The, yeah, the ethical dilemmas? You, you, you created a platform that based itself entirely on keeping things uh, private and secret and then all of a sudden we're giving... You've been compromised You've been compromised? You, you've yeah. got no credibility left, mate. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well... That's um, all that's fit to print in Facebook dating well, years. Well, I, I do want to say that the reaction from the other or the arrivals has been pretty funny. Um, IAC, which is the open uh, the owner of um, Match, which owns Match.com and OkCupid, um, when Facebook announced this, that, that Match's shares went down by 21%. Oh, but, wow. Yeah, but then um, the parent company tweeted a joke about uh, Facebook saying, oh, Joey Levin, who is the CEO, said, come on, the water's warm. Their product could be great for US-Russia relationships. <laughs> 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 oh, see, it's 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 nice to um, see that some people are seeing the funny side of this because I'm Taking really struggling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, if you, if you hated Facebook as much as these guys did, you'd take every <laughs> opportunity you could as well. If you've got a, a great joke about Facebook providing a dating service, uh, please tweet at us, uh, at Bite Intuit. Don't That's post B-Y- on our Facebook. It's <laughs> <laughs> B-Y-T-E, Intuit. Oh, man. Uh, we'd love to hear. We would absolutely love to hear. Thanks for tuning in. We have more ridiculous blockchain news. And this one is the world's first blockchain toothbrush, which lets you mine coins by brushing your teeth. That's almost enough, but it's just too funny. So there's a a Shenzhen-based company called 32 Teeth, which I guess is how many teeth most people have. I guess so, I'm not sure. I guess so. They're currently crowdfunding a project um, through a a particular finance platform. The company aims to make your teeth really clean by applying not only blockchain technology, (laughs) but also facial recognition sensors and big data because this company hasn't met a buzzword that it doesn't like. (laughs) Uh, So pretty much... So it's, um, it's, it, it's trying to make each of your 32 teeth a cryptocurrency mine. Brushing your teeth regularly rewards you with AYA tokens. So this is concerning. You reckon? My <laughs> dentist, well, not only is it a bad idea, but it's actually incentivizing overbrushing, which my dentist says is a problem for some people. Absolutely. I've, I've uh, known of people who've brushed all of the enamel off their teeth to the point where they start to And if you've got a monetary you, reward. Yeah, yeah. The, the incentive to earn a million dollars by brushing your teeth, and you... Like, bleed to your gums, bleed. Well, that's it. And the way that you see, like, people obsessively, like, look at what happened with Pokemon Go last year or the year before. Yeah. People were wandering around doing this thing. Imagine if there are millions of people in China wandering around with electric toothbrushes this constantly. has <laughs> not passed the behavioural economics test, I feel. Like. I think there are plenty of other tests it's not going to pass. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's not the only odd blockchain idea out there. There's um, a whole lot of other ones. Uh, one is uh, you could look at Huawei and Lenovo who are looking into blockchain-based smartphones. 
Uh, there's also a company called LifeSense out of China who have announced a high-end smartwatch based on blockchain. And it's starting to feel like, why are we appending the word blockchain to all of these other other things? It's a, it's a little bit odd. It's a new buzzword. Well, mining blockchain is very energy intensive. It's We know it's not great for the environment, but you'd think on personal devices, you just end up with things like an electric toothbrush that runs very hot. Was it something like uh, Lipton Ice Tea added blockchain to their name and <laughs> their shares skyrocketed? Are you joking? Uh, yeah, there was a... Uh, I'm, sure, I'm not sure if it was Lipton. I might be misrepresenting them, but there was definitely a company that applied blockchain to their name, just to their company name, and their stock rose by like 200% or I'm something. Gonna, I'm going to um, my name to blockchain. <laughs> there was also a cryptocurrency called Ponzi something or other. It actually had Ponzi in the name and it was a pyramid scheme blockchain enabled type of thing. <laughs> and people put their money in and it vanished and surprise, surprise, you know. Who yeah, would have thought it was a great idea? Yeah, would have failed. Who knew? Ponzi schemes, not a good idea. No. We should probably uh, spare a moment for the demise of Apple's airport router. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame. It's, it's a bit sad. I mean, I don't, I've never had one, but it was... They keep saying goodbye to all these products that worked perfectly well, had no fuss and were decent value. Mm. I mean, it, it seems like they're just trying to move everything to the cloud so they don't want you keeping any, any I am still, physical data. I'm still yeah. mourning little nanos which were perfect for exercising with. Uh, so I'm trying to keep mine alive as long as possible. Yeah, no, the, the, the original white iPod that I've got buried at the back of my uh, desk drawer is is probably never going to see the light of day again, but I, I refuse to give it up. Oh, look, they work perfectly, yeah. <laughs> Paperweight now. Time for some... <laughs> Time for some uh, events and opportunities. Well, events tonight, I think. Uh, Dan. Uh, yeah, so the reimagining the design process and UX and accessibility beyond the screen. So that's uh, May 8th, uh, 6 p.m., uh, 67 Queen Street uh, site entrance. Um, so it's uh, the Burn the Concept Mocks with Laura Summers and UX Beyond the Screen with Chris Gray and Accessibility Beyond the Screen with Adam Sifsioglu. Yeah, sorry, so, that was a. Uh, struggled with that one. Not at all. Laura Summers is one of our Byte hosts, and she is an excellent person to, to speak to about all sorts of uh, digital things, but particularly, well, I'd, I'd call her like a full stack developer, but particularly um, interaction design concepts. Mm. So it'd be great to hear her there. We also have Code Like a Girl with a Mother's Day creative coding workshop on Sunday the 13th of May. That is such a great idea for an event. Um, I know that lots of people will be out brunching with their mothers and uh, I probably will be too. But if you had the chance to um, to share this experience with a mum, this would be incredible. Uh, they'll be playing with Arduino boards, um, which can read inputs, things like lights on sensors or fingers on buttons or Twitter messages and um, convert them into outputs like activating motors, turning on LEDs, publishing something online. And they're going to get really creative about ways to tie these little things together and um, begin to get an understanding about programming. Those events uh, sound awesome, but I think the, the event that we here in the studio and uh, at the Broader Byte team are most excited about is, of course, uh, next week's live on location from Melbourne Knowledge Week. So this time next week, uh, Vanessa, or someone named Vanessa, I'd have never met Vanessa before. Um, and Warren, me. Oh, yeah, this guy. Um, and Warren, uh, as well as a whole smattering of uh, us from the Byte crew will be down at the Meat Market uh, in North Melbourne uh, sharing the week's tech news, but also with uh, three really fantastic 
fantastic uh, guests, Amy Gonzalez, who is a specialist in technology education. She's worked with Academy G, Le Wagon, Not Profits, uh, Traditional Academia. She's going to be chatting with Laura Summers. Again, Laura, you are a poly- polymath and we love you. Um, as And the rest of the team talking about how teaching and learning about technology has been changing. Uh, Marco Ryan, a multimedia artist and interaction designer, is going to be joining us, specialising in augmented reality. And David Coles, this, I'm actually really interested in this one, um, mm. a software manager and consultant who recently worked with a pro- on a project with Guide Dogs Victoria to prototype a cane to help vision impaired people cross the road safely. So that's, um, we are so excited about this. Uh, thank you very much to Melbourne Knowledge Week who have uh, given us the opportunity and uh, Mountain Goat Beer, of course, who are sponsoring um, uh, all of our live to airs. It's next Wednesday, 9th of May, 7 till 8 p.m. It's free entry. Just come on down to the meat market. We'll be there um, possibly. Sign up on the Eventbrite so we know that you're coming because that, that would really warm our hearts. And Yeah. We'll see you by the bar. We'll, we'll see you by the bar. We'll have some chats with you guys. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.